Hi, I'm Jack Russell Weinstein, host of Why? Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. Excuse me for stalling just a little bit before the episode starts, but we need your help. We need your donations. For 12 years, Why Radio has brought you compelling, long-form explorations of the most timely philosophical topics, from black identity and the limitations of police power, to the foundations of science and evolution, to an exploration of art and music, to the joys of cooking and telling jokes. This show has given you access to some of the world's most compelling minds, always in a non-adversarial manner. While everyone else is shouting, obfuscating, and spinning the truth, we ask why in detail, and in a good-humored and accessible way. And our entire archive, all 13 seasons, is available online for free. Unfortunately, we're teetering more than we expected. With the economic slowdown and so many people hurting from the virus, our donations have slowed to a trickle. We're genuinely worried about paying our bills and continuing on. We know that many of you have struggles of your own, and if you can't contribute, we want you to keep enjoying Why Radio as you always have. Maybe you could rate us, write a review on iTunes, or get your friends to subscribe. But for those of you in the position to do so, will you please donate? Will you make up the difference for those who can't? All of us and all of our listeners will appreciate your gift. Visit whyradioshow.org, that's whyradioshow.org, and click Donate in the upper right-hand corner. Because we're a division of the University of North Dakota, your donation is entirely tax-deductible, and you know that your money is going where it's supposed to. Information about our budget and information about our needs are both on the webpage. That's whyradioshow.org, and click Donate in the upper right-hand corner. Thanks in advance, and enjoy this month's episode. Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life is produced by the Institute for Philosophy and Public Life a division of the University of North Dakota's College of Arts and Sciences. Visit us online at whyradioshow.org. Hi, I'm Jack Russell Weinstein, host of Why? Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. On today's episode, we'll be asking whether the law is consistent with P. Andrew Torres. A few months after I turned 18, I sued my college's county for the right to vote. At the time, New York was one of only two states that didn't let students vote in their college communities. I was living in the dorms, I had moved out of my family home, and I was being disenfranchised by circumstance. I became one of two named plaintiffs in a class action suit. Did I win? (laughs) Well, that depends on how you look at it. The court ruled that students as a whole should fill out questionnaires detailing their workplace and salaries and savings accounts, among other things but they granted me specifically permission to register. In the end, I was the only student in the dorms who cast a ballot. It was a weird outcome. An economic test was clearly unconstitutional, yet that's what the students had to endure. At the same time, granting me alone the right to vote felt more like politics than legal judgment. They were just trying to appease the troublemaker so I would go away. It all seemed so arbitrary. Now, a different person would tell this story as a lead-in to law school and becoming a civil rights attorney, but not me. Philosophy beckoned instead, and I've enjoyed a career exploring the ideal of justice rather than the justice system. But that experience all those years has stayed with me. Law still feels more like a game for the indoctrinated than a moral imperative for every citizen. I can't get over the suspicion that whatever the Constitution might claim— there are different laws for different people. 
Legal theory has two terms for this distinction, de jure, or in Latin, de jure, and de facto. De jure refers to something that is true by law. The root jure is found in the words juror or jurisprudence, for example. De facto refers to something that is true in reality, something that's a fact of life. Segregation in the United States doesn't exist de jure. It's illegal at every level, as former Vice President Mike Pence might remind us, but it certainly exists de facto. If you're in doubt, just compare how many black people live in North Dakota to how many are in Mississippi. We are a segregated country. There are many reasons for this. Racial separation starts with migration patterns, but it's ultimately about zoning laws, styles of policing, and educational standards and expectations. Cities and states differ radically on anti-discrimination policies and their enforcement. Legislatures are more or less willing to see and respond to the marginalized. Yes, social pressure plays a huge role in advertising who is welcome in a community and who isn't, but legislation makes exclusion and exploitation permissible. If the laws are corrupt, the community will be too. Here's the thing. As irrational and unjustifiable as racism is, it's not arbitrary. It's structural. Our system was designed for bigotry. Me being the one student getting to vote in my college community was clearly a one-time pragmatic compromise made by a local board of elections. The suppression of black voters, housing discrimination, and lack of equal access to, well, everything in the U.S., that can be mapped out and predicted. My situation was a very different brand of inconsistency than the one experienced by black Americans on a daily basis. We're familiar with a certain kind of legal variability in the U.S. We know that drug and gun laws differ from state to state, as do marital laws, tax regulations, and so much more. We're used to the willy-nilly local legislation that is the product of regional compromise and particularist self-interest. We're also used to the idea that precedents, once overturned, can be reversed yet again. It's what fuels the back and forth of the abortion debate. First it was legal, then it wasn't, now it is, soon maybe it won't be, and then eventually it probably will be again. We'll take all this for granted. The philosophical question before us, though, is whether this inconsistency upon inconsistency is just an idiosyncratic feature of American democratic federalism or whether it's inherent in all jurisprudence. We are asking not whether the laws are inconsistent, but whether law is itself. Can there be a comprehensive, stable, and responsive legal system that doesn't contradict itself? If the answer is yes, why do we have so much trouble achieving it? If the answer is no, that consistency is inherently impossible, how can obeying the law ever be a moral requirement? Today's guest is a civil litigator and a well-regarded podcaster. He's taken to teaching tens of thousands of people the legal ins and outs of public policy decisions, good-naturedly explaining the strategies and loopholes that can be exploited for good or for ill. There are few public intellectuals more qualified to help us find the harmony between legal wrangling and electoral politics. As such, our conversation will continually pull us towards the practical. However, as we explore these ideas together, the philosopher in me wants to remind us all that no legal system can be defended if the theory of justice it rests upon is incoherent. Legal inconsistency is unenforceable. It leads to both anarchy and authoritarianism. The last four years have certainly shown us that. And now our guest. P. Andrew Torres is a founding partner at the law offices of P. Andrew Torres, LLC, which focuses on business law. He is the host of the popular podcast, Opening Arguments, 
through which he explores the legal background of our contemporary political controversies and has just released the first episode of a new podcast, Clean Up on Aisle 45, which reports on the current Department of Justice's attempt to roll back actions made by the Trump administration. Andrew, thanks so much for joining us on Why. Oh, Jack, thanks so much for having me, and thank you for that kind introduction. If you'd like to participate, share your favorite moments from the show and tag us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Our handle is Why Radio Show. You can always email us at askwhyatund.edu and listen to our previous episodes for free at whyradioshow.org. Um, so, Andrew, I'm having a, a funny experience that a lot of my listeners probably have. Your voice is so familiar to me <laughs> I'm, uh, from listening to you so much. I'm so excited. So, so your regular listeners will understand why I start with this. I have to ask, how are you doing today, Andrew? <laughs> I'm, I'm fantastic, Jack. How are you? <laughs> I, I, I ask that because you have a nickname. I don't know if you gave it to yourself or not, but you have a nickname, Optimist Prime. No matter what the whatever you're facing on the show, whatever overwhelming issue you have to explain, you are super positive all the time. How, how is that possible as a lawyer to be to have that point of view? I mean, as a philosopher, I'm miserable constantly. <laughs> well, you know, there there are a couple of things that that sort of come into play here, and I, I mean, the first is. I started opening arguments, uh, the first podcast, in August of 2016. And really, the goal was to kind of have an online law school, right? We had these segments that were set aside. Um, I, it, one of my all-time favorites, I, we haven't done it in, uh, you know, four years. Uh, it was a segment called Are You a Cop, right? And it was based on the the well-known trope of uh, if you were talking to an undercover police officer and you ask them, hey, are you a cop? They have to tell you, which is not remotely true. Right. It's, <laughs> right. it's, it's, it's not at all the law. And uh, and this was played to uh, to great comedic effect in Breaking Bad. And we used a little uh, clip in the intro. Um, but the idea was to look at some of those legal tropes that, you know, everybody knows it's X, but in reality, it's uh, it's the opposite of X. And and we had these kind of grandiose uh, educative ideas. Um, and then uh, the show rather quickly <laughs> took a turn for the political for a lot of the reasons that you described sort of in your introduction. Right. We we uh, elected uh, uh, again. I want to be clear, this is my viewpoint and not yours, but we elected a criminally insane game show host as uh, president. And um, and very quickly, we moved into a territory where uh, I realized that it made no sense to have a, a show that was designed to teach the public what an injunction is without pointing out, hey, um, there were just three entered against the president this morning. Right. And so right. everything got kind of contextualized in the era of Trump. And um, and and uh, again, uh, I'm not shy about my politics, um, but but even for those who I think did not want to, you know, consider themselves more centrist or, or even uh, right leaning Republicans, there was a sense of all-encompassing dread, right? The idea that um, 
Donald Trump sort of sucked all the air out of the room in discussions about everything. And so uh, all of that is a long-winded way of saying that uh, I, I get it and I, and I wanted my show to, to remain, you know, uh, upbeat and not a funereal death march. And so <laughs> I kind of took it upon myself to, um, to, to look and to, uh, and, and to see the, the good that's out there. And, and, and look, I, I have dedicated um, my adult life to understanding and explaining the United States legal system, our system of justice. And so, you know, I, in a sense, I'm kind of locked in, right? Like I'm, I'm priced in on believing that that's a real thing. Otherwise, right. I have a degree in baloney. So uh, <laughs> it's kind of important to me that, uh, that that be a real thing. You know, it, it, that story is interesting because as, as you know, but our listeners don't, when I first reached out to you to invite you to be on the show, I said that I wanted the topic to be, can you teach the law to ordinary people? And then as I thought about it and as I framed the discussion, I actually changed it to the current question, which is, is law consistent? And so even the process of me thinking about interviewing you started pedagogical, started as teaching, and then came somewhere else. Do, do you think that it's possible to teach the law decontextualized? I mean, is is the law school education, um, can it be abstract or does it have to be practical no matter what? Well, those are two fantastic questions that are that are kind of layered one on top of the other. The first, uh, let me, so let me tackle the second one first, and that is the law school education process is inherently contextualized. And I, I suspect we're going to talk about it in, in the, in the context of what I call the, uh, the ordinary model of jurisprudence, but basically the way in which law students learn about being lawyers is through what you might consider linguistic immersion, right? Your first year in law school, you read hundreds, and I'm not, I'm not, not, not kidding about that, hundreds of cases, right? Your textbooks are called case books by and large, right? And so the process of figuring out what the law is uh, comes from sort of reading and mimicking what those who interpret the law say it is. And most textbooks are arranged uh, sort of chronologically and also thematically, but chronologically within thematically. And so you wind up with this incredibly weird experience as a, uh, as a first year on your first day of law school of being thrown into these classes and having to read 18th century cases or sometimes earlier uh, English common law cases with all of the old timey English. And it's, and it's, it seems kind of bananas at first, at least it did to me. I, I had no legal background before I, I, I went to law school. Um, but, but over time, I think the idea is that you learn the vocabulary through osmosis, right? And so you you begin to understand what the law is by reading what the law has done. So I, I've always kind of taken that approach in talking about the law to other to other people. And that is that it 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 does you very little good to drill down on a principle 
and not begin applying that principle to, to the world around you. In philosophy and in, in literature, there's a, a problem called uh, or an area called hermeneutics, which which started <laughs> off as sure. biblical interpretation, but ultimately is the question of whether we can really understand texts. And that leads to the problem of other minds and philosophy, yep. which is whether we can understand other people's perspective. Is this kind of immersion in law limited in the same way? Is it really possible to understand the intention uh, behind a law or even the meaning behind a law? I mean, I, I guess another way of asking this is, is there really such a thing as a plain language interpretation of any law or does everything require this interpretive jump that's, uh, I don't know, uh, non-specific, non-certain, um, um, uh, uh, flexible in some in some way. Yeah, you've got another like three or four great questions, kind of all, all merged. <laughs> you you, you got to get used to so, that answer. <laughs> understood. I, 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 all but, of mine but, have twelve. <laughs> <laughs> but let's let's parse that out a little bit. I think your question raises sort of several subfields that I think all of which are kind of worth talking about. And the first are what we might term rule of law questions. And what I will tell you is that the developments in uh, academia, in literature, in philosophy necessarily spill over into legal analysis. Right. And so just as, as we have had um, the, the influence of, uh, deconstruction and and what you might loosely term you know postmodern philosophy uh, and I, I realize I'm sticking my toe into shark infested waters by, by saying that uh, but but the the notion that uh, that texts are not objective and that texts can be a reflection and implementation of the power of those who write and to those who read and those who process them um, that has found its way into the law, right? And, and, and found its way into the law uh, and, and into law schools in, in kind of multiple waves, right? And so one of the first challenges um, to the notion that there is such a thing as the rule of law was the, the concept of legal realism, right? That says, yeah, there is such a thing as a law, but let's be honest, that is what we call the law is the result of political processes and whoever's on top gets to say what the law is. And don't kid yourself into thinking that there is any kind of, you know, metaphysical reality behind that, that that the law ought to mean something else. Um, but but as you pointed out uh, back in, in the, the monologue in, in your introduction, that there's something unsatisfying about the legal realist conclusion, right? That there's something, if if law becomes entirely transactional, if there's no point in obeying it other than if I disobey, I will get caught, um, that seems to run counter to what, what many uh, – including myself, sort of seem to feel about the, the overall structure of, of, of what the law is. And I can, I, I can, and I think we will sort of drill down on, on some examples of that. Put, the, put that aside and let me answer the other half of the question, which is, is there such a thing as a plain meaning of a law? Um, I, I, I would answer that 
both yes and no, right? And and the way in which I would start off with with the no part is there is, I think, no law, no provision of the Constitution, nothing I can think of that literally means what it says, right? And 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 let me give you an example, two examples. One completely uh, banal, right? Um, the speed limit is fifty-five miles an hour. Nobody on earth thinks that that means when you go 56, everybody who goes 56 or greater will receive a ticket, right? And and in fact, you know, you could talk to your friends and uh, if they get a speeding ticket for going 56 and a 55, they will complain long and loud <laughs> uh, about having received such a ticket and, and will likely challenge it in court and will likely have it thrown out, right? Um, it it You don't have to go 55 if you're transporting your pregnant wife to the hospital, right? Like, so, so, you shall drive 55 does not mean you shall drive 55. And 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 now let's go high-minded. Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. Does not mean Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech, right? From the very beginning, we've had laws against sedition. We've had laws against defamation. We've had laws against incitement to riot, right? And the way in which you get around that is by saying, well, those things don't count as speech. So therefore, we're not really restricting. Fr-. But, you know, I mean, come on. What it means is I can think of nothing where, I mean, even down to the speed limit example, where the law is just what it appears to be and is self-executing on top of it. I I, I want to give two examples. The second is going to be, I think, a little more uh, rich uh, to, to pursue. But the first is um, I was briefly in my youth uh, engaged to, to marry a German woman who I met in Austria and came back in the country. And we were going on our first long drive in America. And she was driving and she was driving 55 miles an hour. She's driving like 54. She's a German, right? She follows rules. And, um, and I said to her, you got to drive faster than that. It was a long drive and I was incredibly frustrated. You got to drive faster than that. And she said, well, how fast am I supposed to go? I said, go as fast as everyone else is going. And she looked at me incredibly frustrated and she said, well, how do they know how fast to go? <laughs> right? And, and, and I think that's precisely what you're talking about. A few years back, um, longtime listeners will know I had some stuff on gun rights that went viral and, um, and I was arguing uh, for gun control in a certain way. And I ended up on, on Fox News Radio. And Alan Combs asked me uh, something about this. And I said in passing, gun owners are not a protected class, right? And of course, <clears throat> the right-wing blogosphere went crazy. But there was, and this is this is what I'm getting at, there was this distinction between when I was talking about a protected class, I was talking about a very specific set of terminology outlined by the Supreme Court where there are, I believe, seven protected classes, um, you know, race, uh, uh, um, veteran status, uh, you know, uh, um, things like that. Right. I don't want to go through the whole list, but they heard gun owners aren't protected. Is that. Is that just inherent in the process that 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 the practitioners understand phrases and terms to be very technical with very specific meanings and non-lawyers are going to have their own interpretation of it? Or is it more subtle than that? And even the practitioners are going to disagree as to what terminology means and how to use it. Yeah, I I I love both of those examples. And uh, I can think of I, I I would say 
both aspects are correct, right? So number one, one of the things that I think is really, really incumbent upon lawyers, and I spoke at a uh, a virtual conference in the summer that was the plain language conference, and it was dedicated to what you might imagine, right? That is helping those of us within the legal profession begin to reform our approach so that we are speaking to people in plain language. Uh, there were a, a number of predicate justifications for it. But but for me, what, what I thought was sort of the hold the presses moment was um, the the case involving a uh, a young uh, African-American criminal defendant. We all know if you've watched, you know, any, uh, you know, law and order, any criminal uh, crime procedural, you know, your Miranda rights, right? You must be advised when uh, you are arrested that you have the right to remain silent and that you have the right to an attorney and that if you cannot afford an attorney, one will be appointed for you. Um, and uh, and this person was was read their Miranda rights and replied like, I didn't do it. And uh, if you're going to ask me about the crime, then uh, you better bring me a lawyer, dog. And um, the through multiple uh <laughs> through multiple appeals, um, the 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 courts decided that requesting a quote lawyer dog end of quote was not the same as requesting a lawyer, and huh. that's a preposterous result, <laughs> right? Like what what that has to do is that has to do with a bunch of lawyers pretending that they don't know how people talk. Right. The the intent was obvious uh, to to manifest uh, the desire to exercise your right to remain silent uh, and to have counsel present. Um, they, you know, kind of laughed it off and they're like, yeah, yeah we're not doing that. Uh, proceeded to ask him questions. He uh, cracked and incriminated himself. And it, it seemed to everybody that this is an open and shut case of um when you look to what the defendant wanted to do, they wanted to exercise their rights and language shouldn't get in the way of that. Right. So first part of the question, do lawyers communicate in ways that are obfuscatory, that are not helpful to communicating with the public? Yes. And it's the project of opening arguments. It's one of my big um, goals in life is, is to help uh, convince lawyers you don't have to talk that way. But then the second aspect I think is also true, and that is lawyers intentionally confuse each other, particularly in the political process, because words can have multiple meanings. And the clearest example of that used, you know, to to chilling effect uh, was the, the the Trump administration's litigation over, and I mean litigation in the, the small L in the press, right? Mm -hmm. Fighting right. about uh, the characterization of the Mueller report um, leading to the, the singularly dishonest uh, memorandum that was that was put out by Attorney General Bill Barr before the Mueller report was released to the public uh, that said uh, – there's no collusion between the Trump administration or the Trump campaign in Russia. Um, and you could say that because collusion is not a thing that a lawyer was required uh, to investigate. Right. What, what was uh, Mueller's focus was, uh, is there good evidence that the Trump administration and the Trump campaign conspired with Russia? And the answer to that was yes. 
right? Not overwhelming evidence, uh, but very, very good evidence. And they and they walk through all of that in the in the first chapter. Uh, there was then, by the way, overwhelming evidence that Donald Trump himself uh, engaged in multiple in eleven separate acts of obstruction of justice of covering up all of those efforts to conspire uh, with Russia, but. Over half the American public, uh, as of the, the last polling, um, has sort of bought into the spin that says volume one of the Mueller report exonerated the president because it found no collusion. And none of that is true. Right. And none of that accurately describes that document. So, uh, yeah, we have a, we have a long way to go communicating by in between lawyers and communicating between lawyers and the public. So we have to take a break. Um, And normally uh, after the break, I would tell another little story. But I actually want to get right into a question that I will ask you uh, in anticipation of the break. All right. And it's as follows. If the 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 person in question, you gave this example uh, of, of, you know, uh, I want to see a lawyer dog. If the the people are going to interpret that as not asking for a lawyer, what motivation does that person have to ever obey the law in the first place? So the, the philosophical question I'm going to ask is, what does it mean to um, obey the rule of law? So while you're pondering that, you're listening to Andrew Torres, P. Andrew Torres, as a matter of fact, and Jack Russell Weinstein on why philosophical discussions about everyday life will be back right after this. <laughs> The Institute for Philosophy and Public Life bridges the gap between academic philosophy and the general public. Its mission is to cultivate discussion between philosophy professionals and others who have an interest in the subject, regardless of experience or credentials. Visit us on the web at philosophyandpubliclife.org. The Institute for Philosophy and Public Life, because there is no ivory tower. And we're back with Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. I'm your host, Jack Russell Weinstein. We're talking with P. Andrew Torres, host of Opening Arguments podcast, among many other things, about the consistency of the law. And when we left, I posed a question. Philosophically was, why are we obligated to obey the law? But the more specific example was... I, I can't think of the word. My, my brain has stopped working. A, um, a person was arrested for a crime, asked for a lawyer in colloquial language, specifically, I'm going to need a lawyer dog or better talk to a lawyer dog. And the courts ruled that that didn't count as asking for a lawyer. If the system is so designed to just ignore this person's voice, why should they respect the system? Yeah, and that is... I think the the fundamental question that that animates this discussion, right? So when we talk about the rule of law, I think the rule of law is probably second only to the word freedom in terms of principles that regardless of whether, you know, you identify left, right, or center, what political party, how active you are, right? If you ask people, do you love freedom, right? 
The answer is yes. And on both sides of a political discussion, right? Take take the uh, gun control uh, uh, lobbying that, that you did uh, as an example, right? Proponents on both sides will say, I am pro-freedom, right? Um, because the concept of freedom, uh, while being so animated, is also uh, capable of being interpreted in such broad ways that – um, and, and, and I think correctly so, uh, sometimes restraints on other people acting are considered to promote the freedom of the larger group. And sometimes restraints on other people acting are considered to restrict the freedom of that group to act, right? So uh, it, it's it's a super broad, nebulous concept. The rule of law is the same thing, right? So when you ask, why should I obey the law? The answer is, if you live in a society with the rule of law, that guarantees you some basic level of procedural fairness that we're going to kind of drill down on. And so long as you're in that society and so long as you have those basic procedures guaranteed to you, even if you don't like the outcome, you can assent to the conditions in advance, right? And so think about like playing baseball right? Um, everybody lines up to play baseball. Everybody's at a different skill level, but the rule is three strikes and you're out, right? You're, you swing and you miss three times in a row and it doesn't matter. You're the best player on the team, the worst player on the team. You've got to sit down. It is it is fundamentally procedurally fair. And even when no greater thing is at stake, right? If you've ever watched uh, a uh, a, a schoolyard full of elementary school kids playing baseball uh, and the, the small, and I was always the youngest and smallest kid in class. So this example was me um, and the smallest kid gets up uh, and strikes out and they've struck out every single time. And the gym teacher sort of humanely wants to intervene and is like, go ahead, throw Andrew another one. Um, and, and everybody gets mad, right? Not just, not just all the, members of, of his his team, the members of the other team, but but me up there, right? I'm like, no, 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 I, I don't get a fourth swing. I I just suck. It's on me, right? And and I'm gonna be go a lawyer down. instead. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, I eventually got better at baseball, but um but but right. That, that, so so that's sort of the animating idea. And then the question is what constitutes the rule of law, right? And and so if you were thinking about it in the abstract, right, it's super easy to identify what's not the rule of law, right? What's not the rule of law is North Korea or the Stalinist Soviet Union, right? The idea that uh, secret police can kick down your door in the middle of the night and haul you away because they don't like you and there's nothing you can do about it. And the people who make the decisions aren't themselves subject to their own decisions, right? And so... It, it, from that, I, I think generally lawyers like derive a couple of principles. But, you know, in the same way that no law means what it says, none of the principles that I can think of that sort of underline the rule of law are themselves absolute. Right. So I I, I, I tend to think of it. I, I wrote a law review article about this, um, but but I tend to think of the rule of law as as having three implications. Right. The, the first is that the law must be public, right? And, and that, there's several sub-justifications for that. If it's public, 
you know that the person trying to enforce it against you isn't making it up. You can compare it against something that's written down. It can be known in advance, right? And so therefore, I can conform my conduct, right? And I can say, oh, hey, if I don't want to get arrested, like the law says I've got to do X, so I'm going to do X, right? So that's kind of the first first principle. Um, the second is that the law has to apply to everybody, right? If If there are groups that are exempted from it, then that doesn't seem fair, right? Just like, you know, given the one kid four strikes is not right. And then, and then the third um, that, that sort of wraps it all together is that violations of the law are the sole source of punishment, right? So part of the, the, the Stalinist example, the North Korea example, that's so scary is, uh, is they can, the law is whatever they say it is, but also even if there is no law, they can just direct the secret police to come, you know, snatch you in the middle of the night. And 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 so I think like those three things together form sort of the the minimal conditions for what we think of as uh, having a state, having a set of laws, having the rule of law. But but I mean, you're probably sitting there thinking right away of exceptions to each and every one of those here in the United States right now. I am. <laughs> um, uh, and and I want to ask about that in a moment, because what I am going to ask you is how does the notion of precedent and overturning precedent uh, change the the public and the and the and the anticipatory level of the law? But I actually want to go back to something you said earlier to ask a different question, which is you talked about uh, the procedure and. American legal system is built on this conception of procedural justice that, um, you know, you get the best defense as possible, whether you're guilty or not. Right. And so you had the, the, these standards, uh, depending on uh, criminal law or civil law, uh, beyond a shadow of a doubt or preponderance of evidence and things like that. Now, this is in opposition to other theories of justice where there's justice of outcome or justice being harmony in the universe or justice being the rule of the stronger, to quote Plato. Um, when I ask, is the law consistent? Should I be asking about procedure as opposed to the content of the law is the procedure as opposed to the individual regulations or prohibitions is that where consistency should be um and i'm not suggesting that it is in reality but would your response to is the law consistent be it is if the procedure is the same for everybody so i I love that clarifying question because I, I think you hit on sort of one of my internal biases, right? And that is that part of how we look to see whether something is fair in the long run is to see, is there a self-correcting mechanism at play here, right? Is there is there something that um, enables us to think that an adverse outcome at one point in time isn't locked into the system forever. Um, so uh, I, I think you're right to expose that bias on my part, but, and I would, I would add one of the ways in which we determine whether a procedure is fair is then by looking at the outcomes, right? So in other words, you know, if I think a, a, a good example of this um, that, that's going to dovetail with the, the 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 
the question of whether law is fixed uh, that, that you asked at the outset is the evolution of the law with, with respect to uh, segregation in public schools. Right. And we went uh, within a 50 year time frame uh, of saying that separate facilities can be inherently equal, um, which uh, please be, understand, <laughs> you know, as I say this, um, one could write a philosophical treatise defending that statement. Right. Right. Many have Two, within 50 years, uh, the Supreme Court saying separate is inherently unequal. Right. And and the way in which you move from point A to point B is through experience, is through looking at outcomes and saying, like, yeah, um, I, I guess that is the case that uh, however much I buy into the notion that you could have two things that are apart, that are nevertheless uh, equivalent. Um, but it sure looks like people without positions of political power always wind up getting the short end of the stick. Um, a, a condition that obtains to the state. So uh, it it so both uh, you can hold both propositions. I think uh, simultaneously. Um, from 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 my perspective, the 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 way in which you figure things out, right, is by looking at what kind of law you're dealing with, right. And and I, I probably should have made this distinction. Uh, earlier, but I tend to to divide laws into two sort of broad categories, right? There are principles and there are rules. And we've we've kind of tested the limits of each of those uh, already in the course of this conversation. Uh, like a rule is you shall drive 55 on the highway, right? Um, it, it specifies as well as possible, the precise conditions of what you're supposed to do. And it seems pretty obvious as to how that should be interpreted. On the other hand, right, a principal would say something like, you should drive safely on the highway, right? And and you could imagine how, like, instantly the, the pluses and minuses of both kinds of approaches to law. Um, but But and and i and we can certainly talk about that but but what i want to sort of leave you with to chew on is, is framing digging into this question is virtually everything in the constitution virtually every major piece of legislation everything that we think of as a law a constitutional provision a big deal in our society falls onto the principal side of the equation, right? Which is to say, you know, what does it mean to, to have freedom of speech? Right? The Fourth Amendment protects you against unreasonable searches and seizures. Like, what's unreasonable? The Fifth Amendment says that you shall not be uh, deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. What's a process and how much of it are you due? Th those are all hard questions, right? And so I, I I think when you think about how the law develops, you think about the fact that it begins from a position that like the law is supposed to be hard. The law is supposed to set up these hard questions. It's interesting because I've, I've always said to people, I will go to law school if um, they promise me that the day I graduate, I can sit on the Supreme Court. <laughs> and and it's, it's because this level of constitutional interpretation and the exploration of principles is what interests me, right? I'm a philosopher, right? What Everyone's shocked to hear that. Um, 
But even principles are themselves built on all sorts of assumptions and ideology and context, you know, what uh, what it meant to bear arms uh, in the 18th century to the to the to the uh, colonists, to the to the founders actually meant the right to um, uh, to serve in the military. It didn't mean to, to own weapons, but the interpretation of these sorts of things changes radically over time. And so. Given that, are the people who interpret these inherently political agents? And what I mean by that is, can you have a Supreme Court or, say, a federal judge um, who can really be a sort of neutral or at least contextual arbiter an interpreter of these principles, or whether we agree with their particular uh, positions or not, are all, especially Supreme Court justices, just political agents, and what they're going to do is find an interpretation that uh, justifies and leads uh, uh, their position forward. So that, I think, is the question of that's that's going to guide the next four years um and i will tell you the answer that i give to that question has changed over the last four years and i think the way that i would phrase it now and reserve the right to you know <laughs> change it again <laughs> uh, it, it w- would be something like this that our system recognize so, would be, so the answer would be yes, right? And you're like, wait, 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 I asked an either or question. But but the answer would be yes, right? And it would be that judges are inherently political animals. Um, but nevertheless, it is uh, a useful fiction uh, that has animated our country and helped it survive for nearly two and a half centuries uh, that to to think that there are objective right answers even in hard cases right then in other words even though you may use a political calculus to say how do we think this is going to go um the the idea that the judges themselves are relying on something more is i think key to this notion of the rule of law and the notion that um that there are um, things worth adhering to, even when there are no consequences when, when you don't. Right. Um, so that's a lot kind of to unpack. And and I've got a, a couple of really crucial examples that, 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 that I want to talk about, but um, one where I want to sort of engage you because you, you've, you've got a passion for this. Um, I, where I think kind of the beginning of the end <laughs> began um was was with uh a, a case that you're no doubt familiar with called dc versus heller right. uh, supreme court case from 2008 and j- just as background um that case was decided in in 2008 and so we had 220 years of jurisprudence prior to dc versus heller um and dc versus heller uh struck down 
the District of Columbia's ban on the absolute ban on the possession of handguns within the 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 confines of the city of the of Washington D.C. Prior to D.C. versus Heller, the number of Supreme Court. I usually will ask this as a question, but you'll get it right, and it'll spoil the uh, it'll spoil the, <laughs> the gag. Okay. I, I would say, what do you think in the hundreds of thousands of cases that the Supreme that that the courts have handled uh, prior to D.C. versus Heller? What do you what do you think the number of times the Supreme Court has uh, invalidated? a local city or a state ordinance or law uh, on the ground that that law uh, transgressed the second amendment to the constitution. And the answer is of course, zero, right? It it was the first time that the Supreme court ever said uh, that restrictions on the type of firearms that people own would constitute uh, a, a constitutional rights violation. And it was made all the more galling by the fact that, uh, D.C. had had a handgun ban uh, in, in effect for 60 years uh, at the time uh, that uh, that D.C. V. v. Heller was was brought. Um, and and the particular version that was challenged um, was uh, in effect for 33 years at the time that 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 Heller uh brought his case. So in other words, this was if you go back to sort of our rule of law principles, everybody on earth knew that in the District of Columbia, since time immemorial, you could not have a handgun, right? Um, it certainly didn't seem to uh, be unworkable. It it didn't seem to be a problem. It, it wasn't the case where like people weren't on notice. It really seemed to fit like all of the criteria of the rule of law. Um, and, 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 the only thing that changed was uh, Antonin Scalia was added to the U.S. Supreme Court um, and uh, conservative, a, a particular kind of conservative judicial activist jurisprudence uh, had become very popular in uh, writing in uh, law review magazines, um, published legal journals, uh, and so the uh, the National Rifle Association uh, decided to find a guy to get arrested under the law and to bring a test case, right, to, to openly violate the law in D.C. in order to bring a test case. And the idea was not that anything was different other than the political composition of the Supreme Court was different. And you know what? He was correct. Right. So I, I, I want to interrupt here because mm, yeah. this is this is the moment where the philosopher's head explodes. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, and I will say that that there's nothing inherently wrong with having a test case like right. Rosa Parks was yep. a test case. Right. She it sure. was planned. It was right. So there's nothing inherently wrong with that. When I teach philosophy of law, which is one of my favorite, but also one of the hardest classes to teach, I often teach um, Michael Waldman's excellent book, The Second Amendment, a biography, um, and it tells the entire story in detail of what you're talking about. And when I have to summarize the book in one sentence to my students, I always say the same way. The answer to the question, is there an individual right to own a gun, was no, because there wasn't. And then the Supreme Court said there was, so there was, because an individual right to own a gun is what the Supreme Court says it is, right? Hopefully I say it a little more eloquently to my students, but nevertheless, right? A philosopher thinks that there either is or isn't 
an individual right to own a gun that somewhere in the world of forms, somewhere in, in, in some sort of moral universe, there is this notion of a right. And the job of the law is somehow to access that, right? This is the core of natural law theory, the opposition of, of, uh, legal realism and, and, um, and, uh, God, again, falling on my head. Um, uh, but the American system, uh, seems to say, no, there is what we say there is, and it's not about attaching to some abstract morality, um, but it's about articulating either what we say is in the Constitution or what we want the Constitution to say. Is... Is the divorce between legal and legality and morality a necessary posture for someone who practices law? Can a philosopher who, who is committed to that, the idea that legality and morality have to overlap in some important way, can they not be a lawyer? Does a lawyer have to say, we're not talking about morality, we're talking about legality, rights are what the Supreme Court says it is, or, or they are, and that's it? Let's move on. Yeah. Again, so much to, to, to tear into there. Um, the, the, the first is, uh, while I wouldn't disagree with that assessment, in fact, I set you up to give that assessment, right? <laughs> like that, I think it's, it's why I began my previous answer with, I think the rule of law is a useful fiction, right? Like, and, and useful fictions can, um, take on a self-regulating quality of their own right um so I, money I, I, money is a useful fiction right yeah exactly and, 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 and you know that's example, the classic right? one right yep so i i do think that it is important um that and, and i think that there's kind of a regulatory feedback cycle here so i think it is important that judges ask themselves uh and and believe and are selected using criteria other than how do I reach a certain political end in order to adjudicate this case, right? And and really do, right? Give more than just lip service to I am trying to ascertain the, the capital R, capital A right answer, um, and I am using uh, ordinary uh, and neutral acceptable legal principles to to arrive at that answer. So I think it's important that judges do that. I think it's important that their rulings reflect that. And then I think it's important that the public looks at that and says, yes, that's what makes the judicial system work. And so therefore, I will hold my accounted representatives responsible if and when they fail to put in judges that that follow that sort of mold. Um, we've been on a negative feedback loop for 40 years, and that negative feedback loop has been engineered by um, certain kinds of conservative judicial activists who, under the guise of co-opting the rule of law, right, have adopted phrases like uh, – it's a judge's job just to call balls and strikes, to be a neutral umpire, that sort of thing, um, and and have adopted a methodology uh, that is radically 
unmoored from our, our nation's history, from the way in which law was done in this country for two centuries, um, and, and in doing so have uh, really completed the task at the Supreme Court level. Um, of transforming the the Supreme Court into a, an openly political weapon of of, of conservative outcomes, um, you can see, right, Chief Justice John Roberts being troubled by this, right? You can see that it bothers him that his name, uh, if if nothing changes, will be attached to because he is the Chief Justice. Um, w- what has the potential of being one of the most ignominious Supreme Courts in our nation's history, and that his grandchildren will have to read about the Roberts Court in the same way that you know our kids today read about Plessy v. Ferguson, right? And they're like, oh yeah, the Roberts Court, the most you know humiliating low point in American jurisprudential history. Um, so I think. John Roberts really cares about that institution. Uh, I think by and large, the corruption has not completely, the the political corruption has not completely trickled down to and dominated at the, uh, at the district court level. Um, And, and, and we could, we could talk about that sort of, sort of at the, at the first uh, entry point. Um, But, but yeah. And, And then, so then the question becomes, how do you break out of that death spiral? Right. And 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 somebody to whom I give a ton of credit is uh, Rhode Island Senator Sheldon Whitehouse. And um, he filed, you know, this from listening to opening arguments, but he filed an amicus brief um, in a a gun control case, a case called New York uh, uh, Pistol and Rifle Association. Um, And in that uh, it had nothing to do whatsoever with the merits of the case. It said. You're a conservative court. You're probably going to take this case and you're probably going to come up with a conservative outcome. And I'm here to tell you that will damage your institutional legacy because I'm attaching social science research that shows for the last 12 years, right, from October 2005 to October 2017, the Roberts Court issued 78 opinions that were either 5-4 or 5-3. And of those 78, 73 of them were lined up with the interests of major Republican Party donors, political backers, philosophy, right? Every single time, each one of those 73 cases, the five conservative justices voted to achieve a conservative outcome, right? Which kind of dovetails back to, to Uh, Our first question, right, which is you judge the fairness of the process by looking at the outcomes. And what are the odds that 73 times in a row we just happen to come up with the conservative outcome? Right. Really, really low. I I, want to ask a variation of that or or, or pull a thread by talking about something that that, that you've talked quite a bit about um, in the last uh, few weeks for obvious reasons in opening arguments. And that's the question of whether uh, Trump could pardon himself. Uh, For the record, we're recording this uh, two days. uh, My math is off, but two days into the (laughs) Biden administration, and it'll be broadcast a little later. So if if the world has fallen apart by the time you hear this, uh, don't blame us. But anyway, um, (laughs) you have come out and said on numerous occasions that you believe that that legally um, Donald Trump can, as president, pardon himself. 
And what you often say is, which I find really admirable, and I certainly don't have a position, I'm not qualified to have a position, but but you say, I wish it weren't the case. I think <laughs> it would be horrible if he did. But on my reading of the Constitution and other things, Donald Trump can pardon himself legally. There are lots of other people who disagree with you, and then there's a legal debate. Can you imagine a circumstance in which any of the Supreme Court justices or people on the federal bench say, you know what? I wish X. I wish there were no abortions. I wish people could own guns. But the fact of the matter is the Constitution says they can't. So no matter what I want, it has to be this. Has our system gone so far that that is almost conceptually impossible that a justice will say, here is my personal opinion and my desire, but the fact of the matter is the law doesn't support it and I got to go against myself. Can you imagine that happening? So I can if you give me a time machine. Right? <laughs> be, be, okay. Because look, and, and again, it doesn't have to be set for that far in the past. It, I, I only have to set it for 1992. Right. Um, because that that's what happened with a, a, a case called Planned Parenthood versus Casey. Right? right. And the 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 justices who wrote the majority opinion, uh, Sandra Day O'Connor and Anthony Kennedy, uh, were uh, firmly of the belief that Roe versus Wade had been wrongly decided. They had been added to the Supreme Court. Uh, during the Reagan administration, during his two terms in office. And uh, and this followed the exact same model as the DCV Heller model. Right. So conservatives uh, and, and, and you are correct to point out that um, there's nothing inherently wrong with with test cases. Um, c- conservatives said, oh, OK, um, we're now at a point where the makeup of the court has changed rather drastically since uh Roe v. Wade since 1973. Um, And we think that we have enough justices who have firmly said uh, we find, uh, you know, I I do not believe uh, that uh, the uh, innate liberty contained within the Constitution uh, protects a woman's uh, reproductive decisions. Right. Um, And they brought a test case. Uh, and they were rather shocked <laughs> to to discover that the Supreme Court declined to reverse Roe versus Wade. Um, and and those justices, Sandra Day O'Connor and Anthony Kennedy, uh, wrote, uh, look, whether how we would rule in, in if we were given Roe v. Wade as a matter of first impression is is one way. Um, but we do not come to this on a blank slate. We come to this in light of history, in light of the then 20 years that that Roe v. Wade had been the law of the land. And uh, and they say, so when we reexamine our prior decisions, the first and foremost question that we ask in order to uphold and and they use the phrase, the rule of law, is um, we say, did we so screw up uh, that? We've got to make a, a change here, right? So, and, and here's how uh, O'Connor and Kennedy put it in, in Planned Parenthood. They said, we may ask whether the rule has proven to be intolerable in defying practical workability, whether it is subject to a kind of reliance that would lend a special relationship to the consequences of overruling and add inequity to the cost of repudiation. 
whether related principles of law have so far developed as to have left the old rule no more than a remnant of an abandoned doctrine, or whether the facts have so changed or come to be seen so differently as to have robbed the old rule of any significant application or justification. Um, And and we could talk about those are all interlocking overlapping principles. Right. Um, But 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 as as I read those out to you, um, you note the extreme of the language. Right. There there was an idea of, yeah, um, we we owe deference and humility to our past decisions. Now, if they're so wrong. Right. If they're wrong on the level of Plessy v. Ferguson in 1954. Right. Oh, man, we we thought we had a good philosophical justification for separate but equal. But boy, that was not the case. Right. Uh, It is unworkable. And the rule is now an abandoned doctrine. Right. Yeah. Okay. We're willing to step in and go our bad. We got that wrong. Let's start again. But everything shouldn't be up for grabs simply because the political nature of the court, the political composition of the Supreme Court changes. Um, and and that's the way it was, like I said, 28 years ago. I, I, I think John Roberts would like it to be that way again. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's going to be a challenge getting there. You know, uh, th- those those criteria for when uh Precedent should be overturned are really, really interesting and certainly would be the subject of at least a whole other show, if not a volume, <laughs> right? But underlying this 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 discussion uh, are um, <clears throat> two basic ideas. The first is that um, the stability of the law is a good in itself, right? And that um, and that. All else being equal, you keep the laws the same unless there's compelling reason uh, to overturn it. And that comes from, you know, what what you just described, which is the consequences of the law are so atrocious and it's an abandoned doctrine and we have to admit that we are wrong. The second, which is really interesting to me, is this notion that legal thinking, legal reasoning is a very particular species of reasoning. It's built on this idea that you have this precedent and your job is to say, okay, given that this is, we'll call it true, or given that we've we've held this, um, what follows? The question that I have is, is it possible and I'm not going to I'm gonna try not to make this too abstract. Is it possible within the model of legal reasoning? Is it possible internally to know when you should op- overturn a precedent or does it have to have external standards like uh, the world is burning down and we have to change things? So uh, I, I'm not sure that that's clear, but but I'll ask it again in a different form. <laughs> if you're reasoning from a precedent can you only use the law to overturn a precedent or do you have to use facts, context, empirical information or, or abstract moral claims in order to get outside the system? So I I think actually your, your clarification asked a different question. So let me try and let me try and answer both. First, I, I I want again to emphasize what you've said, right? The the value, the reason that 
stare decisis is important uh, and that the law is not up for grabs um, goes all the way back to our rule of law justifications. Just for those folks who aren't familiar with it, stare decisis is the name for the principle that litigation has to be decided based on precedent. And 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 the primary one, and, and, and again, this is really, really important to me as a lawyer with clients, right? <laughs> like <laughs> we, we can talk about high-minded principles, but 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 my clients pay me to tell to answer their question of can I do X, right? And so when the law is completely up in the air, then you as a person and you as a person who hires a lawyer to give an expert opinion, the the, the answer might be, I don't know. <laughs> right. And and I don't know is a terrible place to be. Well, number one, people don't like to pay for the advice of I don't right, know. Right. Um, but, Unless but, you're the law firm of Socrates, right? <laughs> it, right, right, exactly. Um, but but it also means you can't, you have no idea how to conform your conduct, right? If, if, if a lawyer can't tell you, yeah, you're safe to do X or no, you better not do X, then I, it, it, it calls into question kind of that, then how are we any different than North Korea, right? Um, on the, on the, philosophical level. So, uh, so I want to underscore that as that's the reason, right? You want laws to be stable so people know what, to, how to behave. Then you ask the question, how do we, uh, uh, in, in applying, uh, stare decisis, right? What are sort of the internal versus the external criteria? Um, and I, 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 I want to tell, I mean, this is sort of the flip side of the, of the Planned Parenthood versus Casey decision. The reason I had to travel back in time um, is because today's Supreme Court, um, while, while not explicitly um, overruling or even um, it, or even formally saying, well, we look at it a little differently than we did in Planned Parenthood. Um, Today's Supreme Court has elevated uh, the idea that reaching the right result, that is their preferred result, uh, is the most important criterion in determining whether to depart from from prior precedent. So we've been talking about abortion and gun rights cases. But 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 to me, one of the most dangerous decisions that has come out from the Supreme Court uh, in in recent years is a 2018 case called Janus versus asks me. And it's a tiny little labor law question. It's about how public unions uh, may spread their dues when they represent the entire populace. Right. And so we know, for example, that um, you, you have the right to opt out of a union uh, even if they collectively bargain on your behalf. Um, and, and that they can't impose political dues uh, on non-members. But something that people who've been trying to union bust for a long time have been trying to get rid of is uh, their ability to spread, the union's ability to spread administrative costs as well. And the justification is really, really simple, particularly when you're talking about like the teacher's union, when you're talking about a, a, a government uh, a union that is negotiating on behalf of everybody, including non-union members, to to getting the 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 conditions that apply to everybody. Um, unions are allowed to spread those administrative non-political costs out to the membership. 
And in various states, right, including Michigan, uh, Republicans have tried for 50 years to change those laws at the ballot box and they've lost. Right. There, there, there are states, right, that are uh, that, that prohibit because you could prohibit that by law. Um, they brought up a case in 1975, a case called Abood. And Abood said it's unconstitutional. Was the argument that was being made in Abood was it's unconstitutional for a union to to spread administrative costs to non-union members. And the Supreme Court said, get out of here with that. Right. That's that's a crazy argument. It it is it is preposterous uh because we've already excluded any of the political aspects uh in uh in only passing on the administrative costs. Um much like with DC v. Heller. The same union busting right wing uh, brought a new case in 2017 on the exact same facts. And the argument was it's time to get rid of Abood. Um, Abood was a terrible decision, uh, and therefore we want you to overrule it. Uh, and cutting to the chase, the conservative Supreme Court did. Right. They said, OK, yep, five, four. Uh, and they overruled Abood. They said, yep, unions can't spread even uh, the public unions can't spread even their non uh, even their administrative costs to non-members. Um, and they and they tackled the question. Now, they, they tackled it 38 pages or excuse me, 33 pages into the decision. Right. So uh, of, well, how about that starry decisis thing? How much weight do we give to a boot? And the answer, right? This is a Samuel Alito decision was that starry decisis is at its weakest when we're dealing with a decision that was wrongfully decided. Right. And if you stop at the, and that's what they said. They said, look, the first thing we look to is, uh, I'll read you a direct quote, page 35. An important factor in determining whether a precedent should be overruled is the quality of its reasoning, end of quote. And this is one of those things that you don't realize how insidious a sentence it is until you watch it in practice. Because by definition, every case you want to overturn, you think the prior one was not well-reasoned. If you thought it was well-reasoned, you, you, you wouldn't be in favor of overturning it, right? If, if Planned Parenthood v. Casey had began the same way as the Janus decision, we would have overturned Roe v. Wade in 1992, right? Because those judges clearly thought Roe was wrongfully decided. But they said, despite the fact that it was wrongfully decided, does this have some force on us? Does it restrain us in any way? And 30 years ago, the court said, yeah, it does. And today, this court says, no, it doesn't. And and ultimately, if if this court is not reined in, if this court is not checked in some way, I have some ideas on how to do that. Um, then 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 I think that concept of the rule of law will be lost, and I think that the average person's answer will be, yeah, no, it it there is no other factor, there is no such thing as precedent constraining. It's just who happens to be on the court at the time that the question comes up, um, and and I think we will have lost something that was precious to the founding of this country. There was an example very recently to show exactly what you're talking about uh, in terms of um, 
you know, your clients needing to know what's going to happen and they're not going to pay for I don't know. Uh, the Trump administration sold off or tried to sell off um, drilling rights to the to Anwar in, in Alaska, the the um, the the uh, Arctic Reserve, and no one wanted to buy it. And no one wanted to buy it because they knew that he was coming out of power and that the Biden administration would have different uh, rules and different principles and they might end up wasting their money. And so in that instance, that instability stopped commercial activity, I think, for the good. But but that's a matter of interpretation. But that leads me ultimately to I want to ask the question of the episode, but then I want to ask a, a variation of it, which is. Is the law consistent, whatever that might mean? And the real question is, is that even the right question to ask, right? When I ask, is the law consistent, am I really asking a question that I really should be focusing on something else because it's not as meaningful as, say, a philosopher wants it to be? (laughs) I I love that. Um, and, And so let me answer slash not answer that, that question to <laughs> well the done, very, <laughs> very best of my abilities. So, so first I, I, I want to point out and, and, and thank you for, you know, where I, I get a little bit into law geekery there um, in, in explaining the importance of, uh, uh, of stare decisis. And that just means that each court does not come to the law on a blank slate. They come bound to some degree by, by what, came before them. And and let me describe in sort of prior to 1990 I I have called this there's no word for this. Um there's there's a word for the other side. The other side uh uses uh a, a, an umbrella term called originalism and we don't have t- the time to like right. unpack all of it in the last question. Um there's no word for my side. I call it the ordinary model of jurisprudence. And I will tell you that when I was in law school, even the most hidebound conservatives with whom I disagreed all the time followed this model. Right. And, 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 and you're about to, to hear and, and see why it, it's open and neutral and available to everyone. Right. Um, but it goes something like this. You recognize first that the 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 governing authority the provision of the constitution or the law sets the principle right and and if you if you go way back to i think the first or second question right i i rattled off a bunch of constitutional provisions and i said look these are super vague things right and and they are vague not because our founding fathers were idiots um but but in fact by design right so instead of saying i mean could you imagine right if the second amendment said uh when individuals form state militias, they are entitled to one musket or, you know, two cap and pistol, right? Like then, then the entirety of the constitution would have been an anachronism, right? Um, it, it's, it, it, we might cheer that on from the, uh, from the gun control perspective, because it would resolve that, that question as to what counts as a firearm. But, you know, the first amendment, instead of saying, you know, shall, shall not abridge the freedom of speech or of the press would say, you know, the, the U S Congress may not stop the publication of a newspaper prior to the print being applied to the, you know, and you'd be left going like, great. How does that apply to me as a podcast? Right. Um, so, uh, the vagueness of the law is a feature, not a bug. It sets the principle. 
Um, and it sets a principle like, we can't take away your property without giving you due process of law. And then easy cases are easy and they don't become a, a, a permanent fe feature of the law because you know how to resolve an easy case, right? Uh, the New York Times wants to print a story uh, that is uh, unflattering about President George Washington uh, and President George Washington, uh, you know, tries by executive order to prevent the New York Times from publishing that, right? Never happened um, for a lot of legal anachronistic and factual anachronistic reasons. But, but right, there's no such case on that in history because that's an easy case, right? We know that's, that's within the core of what uh, was meant to be excluded by the First Amendment. But there are hard cases. And when there are hard cases, what you do is you apply, the courts apply the governing principle to the facts at hand to the best of their ability in as neutral a fashion as possible. And you look to prior cases to see how that has been applied in the past. Right. And so, for example, when asking, you know, uh, 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 to what extent is, um, you know, can, could the government censor an internet broadcast, right? You would say, well, Sure looks like an Internet broadcast is governed is much closer to uh, colonial newspapers than, for example, it would be to the, the situation where you had three television channels in the 1950s and um, certain governmental restrictions were upheld because of the, the absolute scarcity, right? Things like, you know, yeah, you can't uh, uh, utter profanity at five in the afternoon, right? So. In all of that. So so what you do is you build a body of jurisprudence. Um, you argue by analogy as new hard cases arise. You say the Internet is closer to a newspaper than it is to a, a TV station. Um, and and at some point you do a reality check. Right. You in, in rare cases, you say, OK, we've built this kind of edifice on uh, on one sort of principle. D did we get it wrong? Right. Did we start from the premise that separate is equal? Oh, yeah, we did. OK. And 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 at that point, you, you, you swallow your pride and you come forward and you admit it and you say uh, as the Supreme Court. And, and this is the reason why Brown versus Board of Education is the most celebrated uh, constitutional opinion in, in U.S. history. Um, you swallow your pride and you say, we got that wrong. Um, right. Separate is inherently unequal. Uh, and and we can't do anything to correct the last 50 years, but we can at least correct it now. Um, and that's that's what I would like to see the court return to a, a situation where, you know, you it, it requires a an opinion on the level of, of a Brown versus Board of Education to say um, that this was not just, you know, Sam Alito doesn't like a case from 25 years ago, but but. The, the weight and the judgment of history have proven to us that that we got it wrong. So I I, I think that almost answers your question. So <laughs> I feel pretty satisfied with that. Excellent. You've offered us, um, and I say this as someone who has taught it uh, half a dozen times at least, you have offered us a crash course in philosophy of law, and my students are going to ask for you rather than me, and I'm going to be out of a job because of it. <laughs> so um, I... Thank you so much for joining us on why this has been just a treat and um, 
we could talk for another seven hours. And I hope that at some point you might be willing to come back. Absolutely. I, uh, I, I love this. I mean, part of the reason that I got into podcasting as sort of, you know, long form uh, journalism communication, um, you know, to, to really be able to take these ideas and concepts that need, you know, two minute chunks and go back and forth and, you know, can't be hashed out in 30 seconds or 60 seconds. So um, this was, this was a ton of fun. I really, really appreciate it and uh, love to come back. Thank you so much. And um, for everyone listening, you have been uh, part of a conversation with P. Andrew Torres and Jack Russell Weinstein. And I will be back with a few more thoughts right after this. Visit IPPL's blog, PQED, Philosophical Questions Every Day, for more philosophical discussions of everyday life. Comment on the entries and share your points of view with an ever-growing community of professional and amateur philosophers. You can access the blog and view more information on our schedule, our broadcasts, and the Y Radio Store at www.philosophyandpubliclife.org. You're back with Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. We're talking with P. Andrew Torres, host of the Opening Arguments podcast and the new Cleanup on Aisle 45 podcast, which find, subscribe, they're free, they're amazing. I learn so much several times a week, and we got to see Andrew's mind at work here and hear not just the, the empirical details of day-to-day law, but also the principles that guide his understanding and the kind of things that we have to ask about. Underlying this discussion was a discussion that really underlies my entire philosophy of law class. And ironically, I had forgotten one of the words because my brain doesn't always work the way that it should. But the debate is between natural law and positivism. Natural law is the idea that our laws are built on some moral principle, some moral system, some moral idea, and we have to access that as accurately as possible. Positivism is the idea that the law is just a human product and we make determinations best on what we think we want to do and what we think we want to write and how we want to organize society. And there are versions of that, like legal realism that he talked about. But but that's the division. Um, is law simply a human creation for human interest or is law an attempt to access the moral and the good? When you ask that question, you're asking not just about the legal experience, but the human experience. The law regulates human actions. And because it regulates human actions, it has to speak to our full experience. It has to speak to our emotions, to our intimacy, to our goals in life, to our beliefs in the divine or lack thereof. It has to speak to love and to hate, to violence, to revenge, to justice, to hope, to all of these things. And that means that the law can be as interesting or as boring as what we focus on in our lives. Every little law, whether it's the tiniest regulation about business interests or the grandest right guaranteed in our constitution, is really a mirror into how we want to live and how we want to treat each other. And I offer that because the very question that I started the episode with, is the law consistent, is problematic from the start. 
Because for the law to be consistent, human beings have to be consistent. And if human beings are consistent, we probably end up being something other than what we really are. So the real question I should have asked is, is the law representative of the human experience? And if so, does it do it well? That is a big question and a question for another time, but as a question for you to pose to yourself as we look at the changes the country is going to face with the new administration, with the knowledge of what has happened in the last four years, and frankly, with a better sense of what we want as people and as a community. You've been listening to Jack Russell Weinstein on Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. Thank you for listening. As always, it's an honor to be with you. Why is funded by the Institute for Philosophy and Public Life, Prairie Public Broadcasting, and the University of North Dakota's College of Arts and Sciences and Division of Research and Economic Development. Skip Wood is our studio engineer. The music is written and performed by Mark Weinstein and can be found on his album Louis E. Soul. For more of his music, visit jazzfluteweinstein.com or myspace.com slash markweinstein. Philosophy is everywhere you make it, and we hope we've inspired you with our discussion today. Remember, as we say at the Institute, there is no ivory tower. 